Welcome to ICU, a podcast where we advocate that compassion and connection save lives. They also make life pretty cool. I'm your host, Julie Lee. ICU, let's be friends. Hey there, welcome to ICU. This is Julie Lee, and this is my very first episode, episode one, My Story. This podcast is so special to me, and I'm so excited you're here to tell you about it. But first, I'm going to introduce myself. I was born in Utah. I'm number six of seven children, and I'm a pretty outgoing person, and I really, really love people. In fact, I'm pretty sure I overwhelm people sometimes, but I'm working on it. My husband is from Philadelphia, but I was lucky enough to meet him because he came to Utah to go to school. We became best friends in college and eventually became more than friends and we got married. We have two beautiful children, Sam and Lydia. Sam is three and Lydia will turn two in just a couple days actually. Something interesting about me is that even though my husband and I grew up on opposite sides of the country, we have the same great aunt and we didn't realize it until a few weeks before our wedding. It was terrifying, but don't worry. We are both related to her through marriage, so our kids are totally normal, we hope. Something else interesting about me, but maybe not quite so weird, is that last year I actually published a children's storybook on Amazon. It's called Broccoli Punzel, and it's a fairy tale about self-acceptance. I love to speak any chance I get, whether it's at a school assembly or a religious fireside. You can find more about that and about me at my website, www.julieleespeaks.com, and that's where you can contact me as well. Okay, that's me. Back to the podcast. So this phrase, I see you, I wanted to put it up in my home, actually. I wanted to have it somewhere where I could see it every day, and I told my husband this, and he usually lets me do what I want with decorating. He usually trusts my taste, which I appreciate. But when I told him I wanted to make a sign that says, I see you on our wall, he said, no. And I thought, why not? He said, I do not want to wake up every single morning, roll out of bed and see the words, I see you on the wall. That is so creepy. I hadn't really thought about it like that, but I could kind of understand what he meant. But of course the next day I couldn't help myself. I sent him creepy pictures all day long. I found off the internet of nails sliding down a window in blood with the words, I see you all day long. I thought it was so funny. It was awesome. I want to explain to you what ICU really does mean to me. It's not creepy, I promise. Stick around. My good friend first introduced me to a deeper meaning of this phrase after she went to an Idina Menzel concert. My friend told me about this song that Idina Menzel sang that was super powerful. So here's some of the lyrics. When you're alone and you can't go back home, at the end of the day, I see you. I'll remember your face. Here's to the lonely, to the brokenhearted. I want you to know, I know, I feel your pain. Here's to the hopeless, the almost forgotten, to those who got lost along the way. I see you, I see you. Pretty neat, right? I also love the way that the phrase, I see you, is used in the movie Avatar. Hopefully we have some Avatar fans out there listening. So the movie takes place mostly on a planet that's called Pandora, and it's inhabited by an alien species called the Navi. So throughout the film, You hear the Navi say the words, I see you, when they're having a really close, intimate moment usually, almost in place of the words, I love you. I see you to me means being completely present with someone in their circumstance, to connect with them. And whether you agree or disagree, 
You're able to acknowledge their emotions as real and as important. You're showing them compassion. I want to take time on this first episode to really share how compassion and connection have saved my life and changed me into a happier, more peaceful person. My story is very special to me, and it's taken some time for me to be in a place where I feel safe sharing it so openly, and I know there will be a lot of listeners who I think will be able to relate to this. My husband Rob and I met at BYU in Utah. We had been married about a year and a half when we moved out of state and away from family where my husband was going to complete an internship and I was going to complete my student teaching in order to graduate from college and become a teacher. I had worked at an elementary school all through college and I had quite a bit of experience in teaching in the classroom for an undergraduate student. I was a hard worker, I felt loved and appreciated by my professors, and I went to the student teaching experience pretty confident that I would do a good job. When I arrived, my mentor teacher, she didn't even know I was coming somehow. There was a mix-up and she had no clue I was coming. I felt immediately like I was a burden on her and I got the impression that I was not wanted there. It didn't take me long to realize that this was going to be a very toxic environment to work in. However, I had to do well first in order to graduate, but also to help me to get a good teaching job after graduation. In the beginning, I could come home at night and talk about how annoyed my mentor teacher was with me and just kind of laugh it off with my husband. But day after day, it was exhausting. I was certain that if I just worked harder, I would get this mentor to like me. Well, for five weeks, I worked myself into the ground. At this point, I was spending my lunch break in the bathroom, bawling and shaking because I was so stressed and full of anxiety. I felt so nauseous I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. I remember trying to keep it together and put on a happy face for my husband's birthday. I wanted him to have a good birthday. The day after his birthday, I had a complete mental breakdown. It was the first time I had ever experienced a true panic attack, and it was terrifying. I was lying on the bed, crying and shaking uncontrollably. My husband tried to hold me, to hug me. He told me everything was going to be okay, but I didn't believe him. I was so certain in my head that nothing would ever be okay again. He told me later that at one point he even walked out of the room to kind of regain his composure so that he could be strong for me, but he was terrified. After talking to my liaison at BYU, I was able to have my student teaching assignment changed to Utah with a mentor teacher that I actually already knew and trusted, and they made it work so that it wouldn't begin until after we got home from Rob's internship, after he had completed his internship. So I came home and stayed at home while Rob continued working at his internship. But instead of my anxiety getting better, it seemed like it almost got worse. Day after day, I experienced a panic attack after panic attack with very little relief in between. I remember my sister suggested that I pass the time watching this new show that she loved called Downton Abbey. So I spent hours trying to distract myself by watching Downton Abbey. But it was too heavy. Downton Abbey was too heavy for me. That shows you where I was at emotionally. After a week of this, Rob and I felt like our only option really was to send me back to Utah where I could stay with family and he could stay there to finish his internship. There are no words to describe the day he took me to the airport. I couldn't stop crying and he just kept hugging me, telling me it was going to be okay until he finally had to leave me at the security line. He told me later that when he got back into his car after dropping me off at the airport, he sat in the parking lot and he cried. He thought, what's happening to my wife and why can't I fix it? I cried the entire flight home and I was embarrassed when the flight attendant came with a box of tissues over to me because I realized I was being kind of loud. 
probably a lot of ugly crying as you can imagine. When my parents picked me up at the airport, I was still crying and I just collapsed into their arms. Later, my mom told me that I was unrecognizable. She didn't even recognize me. I was so different than the girl she'd seen just five weeks before that. I remember lying in the back of my parents' car because sitting up felt way too hard. I asked them, will I ever be happy again? The next day, it took everything in me to just get up and take a shower. The severe anxiety was spiraling and it was spiraling fast into a deep depression. I was honestly sure my life was over and that my dreams were over. I started suffering from awful nightmares that felt so real when I woke up. I would usually have to go sit in the shower for a while and tell myself it wasn't real over and over again. My angel sister and her family took me in and I lived with them for the next nine weeks and I will be forever grateful for the countless hours she and my brother-in-law spent talking to me and helping me through each day. In fact, we came up with a name, kind of like a dual identity, for the me who was in a panic attack. I called her Delilah. My sister would come into a room and find me crying and I would half laugh, half cry, Delilah's back. Then she would hold me and she would kind of laugh, half laugh, half cry with me. And that's what I needed. I needed someone to sit with me, to connect with me and to show me compassion. I loved the moments where I could say to her and my brother-in-law, Delilah is gone. I don't know if that's the healthiest way to handle the situation, but it worked for me and my sister who have always loved to laugh together. My first day of student teaching back in Utah, I only made it an hour before telling my mentor teacher that I couldn't do it. I left the school bawling and certain that I was never gonna come back. Luckily, my BYU liaison knew me well before I began student teaching out of state. She knew who I had been before. She called me that day and told me I could do it, and she gave me courage to just try one more time. I am so grateful to her and my incredible mentor teacher who believed in me when I honestly couldn't believe in myself. They had unrelenting compassion for me, and they took the time to sit and connect with me as I told them my fears and my doubts. They were saying, I see you through their actions. I tried taking an antidepressant to help with the anxiety and depression, but it took some trial and error before I found one that worked. Medicine didn't fix all my problems, but it was a huge help in getting my emotions level again. Counseling helped me sort out my feelings, and I began to feel better and better. I started having hope again. When Rob finished his internship, he drove home to me. I don't know if anyone has driven across country faster. I screamed when I saw him and jumped on top of him crying. He was surprised at how skinny my arms were. I'd been losing weight at rapid, rapid speed from all the anxiety and the lack of appetite. We graduated with bachelor's degrees that summer. I was feeling pretty good by then, and with my doctor's consent, I started weaning off my medication because I didn't want to be dependent on medicine. I thought that was a bad thing. I even posted a blog about the process. I took a picture of my hand holding a whole pill, then a half pill, then a quarter of the pill. And finally, on the 4th of July, I took a picture of my empty hand with a smiley face drawn on my palm, symbolizing that this was my Independence Day. I was grateful for the things I had learned and so glad it was all behind me. We left on another adventure just a couple weeks later out to Indiana for Rob to get his master's degree at Notre Dame University. We were so excited for a new adventure. We had only been in South Bend for two days before I crashed again. I couldn't believe it, you guys. I was so certain that all of that was behind me. I began having terrible nightmares again, and it took me a long time to calm myself down and ground myself back into reality when I woke up. 
I got into a doctor and got on medication once more and paired with some helpful therapy, I slowly came out of it, but it took me a lot longer this time. When we came home to Utah about 10 months later when he was finished with his program, I felt pretty stable again. So what did I do? I weaned off my medication again. I began my teaching career and I loved it. I loved the people I worked with, the parents, and most of all, my cute little second graders. And then winter break hit. That's all it took this time, two weeks of unstructured time to send me into a spiral of anxiety and depression. I obviously needed help. I searched online for a therapist and I remember I was drawn to a particular one. I wasn't sure why, but I felt strongly that she was who I needed to go to. This therapist happened to specialize in childhood trauma, and after a few sessions, she started connecting some dots. So up to that point, and in previous counselors, me and the counselor had spent the majority of our sessions discussing my traumatic student teaching experiences. This therapist dug a little deeper and kind of stumbled on a landmine. While I grew up in a family who loved me, I carried a lot of heartache and responsibility from trauma I experienced as a small child. I didn't want to talk about it in counseling at the beginning with her. It was so scary to talk about, I didn't even want to touch it. But very slowly, we kind of unraveled the past together, my therapist and I. Now was when the work really began. My nightmares, my flashbacks, the depression, the anxiety, it all finally began to make sense. My therapist told me my symptoms reminded her of a condition called PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. It was actually a huge relief to have a name for all these tornadoes spinning around in my head. It took time to find a medication that worked again, but once I did, I was able to learn coping skills through therapy and retrain the neural highways in my brain. Instead of living in constant fear, I learned to talk to myself so that I could feel safe, so that I could reassure myself that even though I felt in danger, I was safe. The little girl inside of me was safe because I had her back. I learned that I needed to be honest with God. One of the most important days of my life was when my therapist asked me if I was angry at God. I quickly told her, no, I wasn't. She said, okay, but if you are, it's okay. He can handle it. I thought about that and after the appointment, I sat in my car that day in the parking lot and I started crying. I cried a lot during these years, if you can't tell yet. I started crying and I talked to God. I'm so angry with you, I said. How could you let all of this happen? I was just a kid. Why didn't you help me more or protect me from all that pain I experienced? Strangely, I felt a spirit of peace flow through my body that I can't ever deny. It turns out God can handle it, and he was okay that I was angry at him. It's almost as if he was saying to me, I know you're angry. Thank you for finally being honest with me. Now let's actually talk about it. I felt like God was saying, I see you there in that car. I see you crying and feeling angry. I see you, and it's okay. I was so excited about all the progress I was making in therapy because I was certain that now I really could get off medication for good and put all this PTSD nonsense behind me. With my doctor's consent again, I stayed on the medication after having and delivering my two kids in hopes that I would be able to avoid any chance of postpartum depression, which I was terrified of. So when my daughter was four months old, I weaned off the medicine and looked forward to a life free of anxiety, depression, and medication that I did not want to be dependent on. And I did okay for about four months. Well, a lot of stressful things happened that year. I had two sisters diagnosed with breast cancer. My dad left the church that my family is a part of and grew up believing in and that he taught us growing up. And he adopted atheism as his belief system, which was pretty confusing for me. 
My parents separated and finally divorced several months later after being married for 39 years. I also read a book that hit really close to home with a lot of my experiences as a kid and it triggered a lot of negative feelings for me. Maybe you can kind of see what's coming, but I honestly didn't. That summer, I hit rock bottom and I hit it fast. This was the lowest I ever got, the darkest, the scariest things ever got for me and my small, sweet family. I tried getting back on the medication I'd recently weaned off of, but it didn't work. The medicine wasn't working. My husband came home from work each day to a wife that was a puddle on the floor. I tried so hard to be a good mom during all this. I refused to let on to my kids that I was struggling. If I needed to cry, I went into a different room, or I did it in the shower while they watched a movie together. There was a girl in our neighborhood who had moved in recently that I'd felt an instant connection with, like we could be friends. She came over one day, and she saw that I was in emotional distress, obviously. She looked at me, and she almost ran across the room to me. She grabbed me, and she held me so tight. I cried into her shirt. She didn't say anything. She just held me and held me while I cried like a child. That is what compassion looks like. She sat with me for hours on my back patio while her husband stayed inside with the kids, listening as I told her that I couldn't do this anymore. Not for another second, I couldn't do it. Where was God? Didn't he see me? Didn't he see my sweet little kids that needed a mom? My friend, she didn't try to fix my situation. She listened and she held me. She did tell me, you are enough. There is hope, and I don't know how, but it's going to come. She looked into my face, she looked into my eyes, she touched my arm, she connected with me. This same friend came over a different day, and she asked what she could do to help. I very humbly asked if she could help me clean my house. We didn't say a lot to each other that day, we mostly just cleaned. I saw true religion in action that day. I tried everything I could think of to get out of my depression. I tried to learn a new musical instrument. I read my scriptures for long periods of time each day. I journaled. I served other people. I studied my scriptures with my husband daily. We prayed together every morning and night diligently. I forced myself to go do fun things. I prayed with my kids daily. I went to the temple as much as possible, which in my religion, we believe the temple is a house of God and where you can go to feel close to heaven. I'd go there and I'd pray and I'd ponder and I'd ask over and over again to be healed. You have to understand that Rob and I, we are very, very driven people. We work hard and we get the results we want. That's how it works for us. So there were times when we would try to tackle the depression together. One day we took our kids to the splash pad and Rob encouraged me to go down the kids slide. Go try and have fun, he said. Even though I didn't really want to, I was determined to try everything and determined that I wasn't gonna ruin this day. I went down the slide and the water was so, so cold. But I popped up and exclaimed to Rob, the water was so cold. I was distracted from the depression for a second because of how cold the water was on my face. Awesome, he said, go again, go again. And I went over and over again on that dang slide. I look back at that memory and I wanna laugh and I wanna cry all at the same time. There were times when Rob and I really struggled to understand each other. He would try and fix it, and I would feel ashamed that I needed fixing, and I would work harder to fix it myself without depending on him at all. We knew we loved each other, and we stumbled along as we tried to figure out how to work through this together. I went to the doctor, and he prescribed me a different antidepressant in hopes that it would work. It was in a different class than the ones I'd been trying. Well, that night, I was sitting on the couch with my husband, feeling confused and scared, and a knock came at the door. 
It was this big, tough-looking guy from our neighborhood who I thought of as kind of quiet, reserved, and honestly, a little bit scary-looking. In our house, we referred to him as the scary guy. He said he felt like he should stop by your house and asked how I was doing. He sat down next to me, and I started to cry. He looked into my eyes, and he said, You're really struggling, huh? Things are pretty bad right now, huh? He was seeing me, really seeing me. And somehow I felt some relief in just having someone see me. He started to tell me about his own past with depression and anxiety and how he came out of it. He told me he knew exactly what I was going through. He knew exactly where I was at. But he also told me I could do it and that there was hope ahead. And for a second, I saw a glimmer of light, of hope. Rob asked him, what can I do for her? I don't know what to say to her. The scary guy told him, love her, listen to her. The next few weeks, while you wait for medicine to kick in, they're going to be rough. Be nice to her. Basically, he was encouraging Rob to see me, to connect with me, and to have compassion on me. The bathroom became a sacred space for me that summer. That's where I went to pray. I would go in there and I would turn on my fan and I would fall on my face. I remember one day praying on the ground, lying face down on the dirty tile, begging for God to heal me. I stretched out my hands, pleading with him to come so that I could touch his robe, just like the woman with the issue of blood was healed in the Bible. If you're not familiar with the story, in the Bible there's a woman that has this issue of blood for 12 years, and Jesus is walking by, and she knows that if she can just touch his cloak, that she'll be healed. And she is, because she has so much faith, Christ heals her. I told God I had that faith to be healed, and in that moment, I believe I did. But he didn't come, and I wasn't healed. Not yet. But he did send me something. I was sitting in the kitchen, writing in my journal, and, you guessed it, crying at the table. I was hiding my face so if my kids walked in, they wouldn't see that I was upset. Sam came over and started tapping my arm, saying something over and over again. I finally stopped and said, What, Sam? What? He said, Mommy, Mommy, Jesus loves you. I knew then that someone much bigger than me was seeing me there in the kitchen, seeing me at my kitchen table, trying to hide my face and trying so hard to be a good mom. The medication did eventually begin to help me see clearer. It was wonderful. The only way I can describe it, coming out of a severe depression and anxiety like this, it's like seeing the world in black and white, and then suddenly you start to see it in color. You almost look around to see if everyone else notices the change, the black and white changing to color. But for a lot of people, they just think seeing in color is normal. There's nothing like seeing color again. The interesting thing about color is that you can't see color without light. Throughout my process of healing, it was really difficult to see color because I didn't have the light of hope that I needed to be able to see the color. But it seemed like when people saw me, when they had compassion and connected with me, whether through hugs or talking or listening, I saw little pockets of light on my journey ahead. And when other people saw me, I slowly began to be able to see myself again. I worked hard in therapy to connect with what a lot of psycho psychologists often call your inner child. Connecting to my inner child and telling her she was safe and having compassion on her by giving her what she needed. That's when I really started to feel healing. Sometimes what my inner child needed was a walk outside. Other times, it was giving her a half hour to just cry, to just lose it on my bed. Deep down, I really believed she was worth it. And the people around me made sure I knew that she was worth it too. 
Did people and do people say stupid things when you're in pain? Absolutely. But it's okay. I can't even begin to count the number of probably stupid things I've said just out of ignorance or just because I didn't know what to say. But at least we're trying. We're trying to connect. We're trying to show compassion to each other. That's what seeing each other is all about. I've learned that what's worse than saying the wrong thing is not showing up to say anything at all. Compassion and connection from people around me saved my life. So much so that I decided to start a podcast all about it. We did it. We made it through episode one, my story. Thank you so much for listening and allowing me to share my story with you. Please share the podcast with someone you love and tell me what you think at www.julieleespeaks.com. I am so excited for episode two, where I will be joined by a very special guest who has the most beautiful story and is one of the key people I mentioned in my story today. You'll have to wait and find out which one it is. I'm Julie Lee. Spread the love. Go see somebody today and tell me all about it. Until next time, see you later.